This is hell. Manufacturing descent since 1996. This is hell. I uh, saw a listener for the listener of the radio show on Friday afternoon as I was leaving the bar, and they told me they're talking about the opening of the show where Neil Young yells, "Thank you, Chuck," and I say. You're welcome, Neil. Apparently, Joe Biden was being interviewed on MSNBC, and he referred to the interviewer, who was named Neil, as Chuck. And so he says, thank you, Chuck. I mean, Neil. And he's trying to isolate that right now and make that part of our intro. So I really want to hear that on today's show. At all, it, all it seems we do ever is work. We work longer hours. We work harder. We are expected to produce more. When, while we work and we're, when we're not at work, we're supposed to be still working and we're on call if we're not at work or some other process. We're always connected to work, working from homes as our homes have now become a site of work with home offices thoroughly normalized and ubiquitous. Even when you are not at work, you're working for somebody else. Remember when the cashier at the grocery store would cash whatever, or, you know, scan whatever you were buying and then a bagger would bag it for you? Well, the hugely profitable grocery store chain has replaced the bagger with you for absolutely no pay. And now that you are using the self-checkout, you've picked up yet another unpaid job at the store without even noticing. This life at work must stop. Enough of our time has been bought and paid for by others, and it is time we take it back, at least. That's what the anti-work movement and writers on our show have been arguing. But what will we do with that time in the post-work world? What is the good productive work we could or should be doing? And whatever we determine that good work to be, what does that good work proclamation say about us? We'll look deep into the post-work world of anti-work when we speak in a few minutes with Marila Fanabecker and James A. Smith, co-authors of Work, Want, Work, Labor, and Desire, at the end of capitalism. Marila is a research associate in critical theory theory and early modern literature at Strathclyde University. Follow her on Twitter at Marila P. James is a lecturer in the English department at Royal Holloway, University of London. You can follow James on Twitter at New Populism. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show, podcast, live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. Alex, how was your weekend? Oh, great. I'm doing great. Oh, all right. <laughs> I mean, I ate like a half a pound of chocolate chips in the last 24 hours. Mm. But, uh, it's white chocolate chips, so I think it's okay. Ugh. Yeah. Uh, what'd you do all weekend? Uh, hung out, uh, went for a couple of walks, made a really intense uh, pork dish uh, that was in the New York Times food section on Wednesday now that I'm getting the New York Times delivered to my house again. So, you know, just hanging out, just a tip, very typical weekend, except I didn't uh, come here, which was really a good thing. because you relapsed I, on the NYT. Uh, yeah, yeah, very good. Very good to have it back in my life, because the only thing that I was reading at my house was the Houghton Lake Resort, and I was about to kill myself <laughs> over there. Brave enough to be live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is hell, and Alex has this week's hangover cure. This week's hangover cure is avoiding contracting the coronavirus. <laughs> So wash your hands often with soap and water for at least 20 seconds, especially after going to the bathroom, before eating, and after blowing your nose, coughing, or sneezing. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, your nose, or mouth. Stay home when you are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze with a tissue, then throw the tissue in the trash. 
clean and disinfect frequently touched objects and surfaces using a regular household cleaning spray or wipe. Practice social distancing. Sound like my wife over here. <laughs> this makes this week's hangover cure, avoiding contracting the coronavirus. The future ain't what it used to be. This is hell. The future was never supposed to be a fantasy paradise where we all voluntarily locked ourselves away in our homes in constant fear of being sick or catching someone else's illness, left with only a virtual community to support each other over our smartphones and computers. The promise of tomorrow was not the closing of all restaurants, bars, schools, and everywhere people socialize because of concerns that we may all may have the virus. We may all be infected. Sure, you can fight it off, but in the meantime, you're a walking, talking, coughing, sneezing, spitting biological weapon to everyone who may be a bit more susceptible than you, like people over 60 or diabetics or cancer or HIV survivors or people who have gone through an organ transplant or a bone marrow transplant or those taking immune-suppressing drugs like people who suffer from rheumatoid arthritis or lupus or multiple sclerosis or inflammatory bowel diseases. Even if you are able to deal with COVID-19 because you are not in any of those at-risk groups, you are a threat to the lives of every person in those at-risk groups. You are a threat to other people's lives. The Star Trek science fiction utopia we imagined was not a world in which we can no longer make physical contact with other humans, no longer shaking hands, hugging without fears of death, or at least becoming a carrier of death, wielding the scythe of doom that is coronavirus. This is not the amazing next world of flying cars and robot maids we were told would inevitably come true. The media loves the term the new normal. They applied it to climate change as if, well, get used to it because there's nothing we can do about it. And they went about their way, went about their business, ignoring the root causes of climate change as we continue to set annual records for the amount of fossil fuels burned every year. Climate change is the new normal, so this is normal, so keep acting normal. Nothing to see here. The new normal is no restaurants, no bars, no sports, no meetings of more than 50 people with everyone at least six feet from one another. But it's even better if we just lock ourselves away for a while and wait this thing out until the new normal ends and a next new normal begins. But this new normal of climate change isn't ending, so why are we certain this one that we're existing in now, the new normal of COVID-19, will? We're being told this virus will burn itself out somehow, that we will find a cure, a cure that President Trump will not try to buy the exclusive rights to so he can determine who does and who does not get treatment, as he was trying to do with a German pharmaceutical company that may actually be getting close to getting a cure. We are told this too shall pass, but what if it doesn't, or it takes a a very long time, like, say, a year, and maybe in five years we will think... If only it had been just one year, we had to stay indoors. When I see or hear sports today, they sound like an echo from a far distant past, like the radio announcer voice stretching back through history as he announces, Oh, the humanity, as the Hindenburg explodes and erupts into flames. What were sporting events played only days ago now seem archived in history as this past past time that seems frivolous and unnecessary in retrospect quaint ways to entertain ourselves as our apocalypse waited around the corner for us now that restaurants have closed food shows celebrating them seem out of touch with reality and 
whenever anyone does touch in anything we watch, there is a sense of, did they wash their hands for 20 seconds before hugging? Watch some of those old shows. The personal hygiene on Seinfeld is atrocious. I can only assume the person who Kramer was based upon is either suffering from COVID-19 right now or is already dead. So what if there are no more sports? I know for a lot of you that makes no difference at all, but there are tens of millions of people in the U.S. alone who distract themselves with sports. What are they going to do with all that energy now? Because considering all the nationalist propaganda, they are fed at sporting events and they are still willing to go to more sporting events filled with nationalist propaganda, doing all the required calisthenics of standing and taking off your hat and putting your hand on your heart and then sing, monkey, sing. If they do not have that distraction, they are going to find other places to release that energy and one of them may be politics, activism, even joining a movement. And you probably do not want to see the kind of movement that is manufactured by decades of nationalist militarized propaganda because all of that pregame celebration is frighteningly verging on fascist glorification of violence, death, and war. Have you watched the crowd in an NFL game engaging in four hours of primal screaming while dressed in the most frightening Halloween costumes their nightmares can imagine while holding a sign that oddly says John 316? Do you actually want that whole mess to not be distracted by sports? Actually, maybe that would be best if they were distracted from sports. Maybe after lifting their head out of the sand that is the media vacuum, sucking every aspect of reality from our worldview and replacing it with mindless distractions so we don't recognize the horrors that are taking place around us at every moment, maybe now they will notice the homeless people they drive by every day on the way to work. That is, if they were going to work, and soon none of us will. We will all be locked away in our little boxes now without many of the distractions that kept us from noticing, recognizing, and realizing what is actually happening before our eyes, but unable to re-enter the real world to see that reality. And what will all of our worlds, left to their own devices, become? Devices like our smartphone, our laptop. What will we all become in this new normal future of self-imprisonment? More importantly, how long will this last? And even more importantly... Think of all your family members, all your friends, all your acquaintances, all the people you used to see at the restaurants and bars and sporting events, everyone you interact with every day. Now ask yourself, who will live and who's going to die? This is hell. Work has taken over our lives every moment of every day. And we are going to be talking about that in just a little moment and the ways in which people have tried to free themselves from that work. We'll also have Rotten History and what's happening on the rest of this week's shows. Noam Chomsky called This Is Hell Sanity and Talk Radio. So clearly and sadly, Noam's gone insane. This is hell. Work is everywhere, all the time, seemingly, in our new age of life work. So many are asking that we break these bonds of labor and move into a post-work world of anti-work. But what to do with all of our time in such a world here to help us better understand anti-work? Marila Fanabacker and James A. Smith are co-authors of Work, Want, Work, Labor, and Desire at the End of Capitalism. First, welcome to This is Hell, Marila, who is a research associate in critical theory and early modern literature at Strathclyde University. Uh, Marila can be followed on Twitter at Marila P. Welcome to This is Hell, Marila. 
Hi, Chuck. Thanks for having us. And welcome, James. James is a lecturer in the English department at Royal Holloway University of London. He is the author of Other People's Politics and Samuel Richard Richardson and the Theory of Tragedy. And you can follow James on Twitter at New Populism. That's N-U Populism. Welcome to This Is Hell, James. Very good to be with you, Chuck. Marila, let's start with you. You write, this is the new life-work regime in the West where all you do is work and everything you do can be put to work. I know that this is a very basic question, but it's an important question. Marila, has it always been like this? Because there are those alive today who only know this kind of life. So has it always been like this? Well, thank thank you for your question, Chuck. It's 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 a good one. It's an important one, of course. You know, in some ways, you might say this is the basic assumption of capitalism that it works by exploitation. And you might say that the way that we work now under digital capitalism, in some ways, only make us digital day laborers, but in other ways, are the way that it's always been for the poorest, for the most vulnerable. So yeah, that's that's a good point. But still, there are some differences that we think are worth thinking about if we are going to find a organize a struggle against the very bad forms of work that we increasing numbers of us are working under today. So if if for many work has always been precarious, it's precarious in different ways where we all digitally available 24 hours uh, a day, uh, and that has made it so much easier to abolish the forms of uh, stable career where you have a um, where you have a job for life um, for both blue and white collar jobs. Uh, on the one hand, um, then of course automation also brings new forms of de-skilling to us, and we get this um, ever expanding. Um, gig economy on the one hand, but also the way in which administrative and emotional forms of labor creep into all sorts of jobs from from the bottom to the top. So that would be one one way to, to answer that first question. James, you write that when you're working for money, more of you is being monetized in more ways and better than ever before. What happens when we are completely monetized, when every part of our day, every moment, every second, every action is monetized? Isn't that good? Because we're always making money, or is it bad because we're always making money? Well, someone's always making money, Chuck, and it won't necessarily be you. Uh, I guess our interest here and in our, our argument to the intervention we're trying to make is that um, if you look at uh, our current period and compare it with the, um, the period that kind of defined our habitual ways of thinking about what a job is, um, it would go something like this in in the kind of period of the of, of the great society and the new deal in the states and and in the period of the kind of post-war consensus in europe um you basically had a kind of idea that states would guarantee um that a family would have uh, at least one breadwinner who would be um working a set number of hours would have their job protected uh, more or less for life um, and uh, uh, they, they would work a certain number of hours in the day and that would um, offer certain protections. What we've um, seen over the past 40 years, uh, the period usually referred to as the time of neoliberalism, uh, and we call it the life work regime. What we've seen is on the one hand, uh, the security of your job breaking down as Marila just described, well, simultaneously, the amount of you that can be 
monetized or put to work in various ways has greatly expanded. So it's a kind of combination of um, new kinds of insecurity setting in in our general lives, just at the same time as more and more of us can be monetized. So, um, of course, uh, a kind of uh, whatever business self, self-help guru or, or a Silicon Valley entrepreneur would want to tell you that it's a great thing that you can be uh, using your side hustle, you can be uh, camming on Snapchat, you can be selling on eBay uh, every hour of the day. Um, our point is that it, it, it's very rarely you who is going to be seeing the benefit of that. You know, there, uh, I just want to follow up on that really quickly with you, uh, James. It, that is that, um, you know, you're right that if you're unemployed, you still get put to work and someone else is still going to make money out of it. After work, it's shadow work. And that used to be someone else's job and li- livelihood, too. And it made me think about going to the grocery store and now you have to be the bagger and now you have self-checkout. And so it's as if with automation, when things were supposed to get easier for us, actually, we're doing more work. The customer is doing unpaid work. How complicit, how compliant are we when we agree with the grocery store's business model of you doing free labor for them, replacing their human labor, their human labor cost? Yeah, well, there's a strange way in which um, uh, we're very interested in the ways that people have try to imagine the future and try to kind of think uh, in utopian terms about work. There's a strange kind of way in which we've become um, uh, quite dystopian people. Nobody can um, imagine that things could any be, be any better. I mean, in the election we had last year in Britain, it was regarded as a kind of laughable impossibility that uh, Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party was offering uh, state-provided Broadband, you know, this even this was regarded as some kind of sci-fi, kind of ludicrous uh, 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 utopian idea. We've become very sceptical and dystopian about what we can expect, while still retaining a kind of um, progressivism or assumption that uh, technology is essentially a, a good thing or somehow inevitable. So it's perfectly possible to go into a, a, a store and uh, see the um, automated checkouts being put in and regard that as a kind of, oh, well, it's like living in Star Trek, isn't it? Regard that as a kind of uh, a, a positively tinged science fiction innovation, while also knowing very well that uh, when you choose to queue up in the in the express lane of using the automated checkout, you're contributing to uh, the fact that those people working in the in the in the supermarkets uh, are seeing their um, labour conditions uh, worsen and worsen. So I, I think there's a kind of almost double consciousness that goes on with with these things. That even though we know very well that technology uh, in its current hands is contributing to uh, a way in which our quality of life is. Uh, is reducing, there's still a kind of sense in which we think of the way that technology advances as somehow uh, inevitable and and positive. Uh, Too few of us um, are asking questions of, well, who owns these machines? Who decides what what gets researched? Who decides what uh, what gets invented and how it gets put to work? Mm. And to follow up on that, when you you ask that question that we're so often asked these days, are we complicit? Um, Well, of course we are in some ways, but I think it's always important there to remember that individual complicity in, in the ways in which our 
digital capitalist workers organized can only ever go so far just just like we can't save the planet by stopping to use plastic bags we can't um save the future of work just by um always dutifully queuing up at the the bit of the supermarket where there's still a person behind the the till these are massive structural um, problems and 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 I guess we were trying for once to step back and, and ask more generally how would we have to reorganize work and, and work life all together in order to to get rid of those kind of injustices. Well, Marala, do you think that considering that complicity, does that work in challenging our current state of capitalism, our current life work? Does it does that kind of uh, focus on complicity work, or is that a distraction from challenging capitalism? Well, I guess in in a way, um, the whole book is about quite how intractable our complicity is. So that's why the book isn't just about work, but also about um, wanting and about desire. What kind of work do we actually want? And this question really then is much bigger where we have to ask ourselves, well, how in how far are the things that we want already shaped by capitalism in such a way that we're you know it's very difficult not to be complicit we want stuff we want to buy stuff is it is that is the solution to that really to just say oh well i guess i'll buy some fewer things and that'll be a good thing or is it a bigger question of what how do we need to organize the our world of work as a whole in order for for it to be fair and that's why i think there's there's room for utopian ideas so that we can just that we need to also think about how would we like to be it all together if we could choose in order to use that then as a kind of um, as a as a point of orientation in this most dystopian moment, if that makes sense. Marila, last week we were speaking with Nicole Ashoff, author of the new book, The Smartphone Society, Technology, Power and yeah. Resistance in the New Gilded Age. <clears throat> Nicole writes how philosopher Walter ben- Walter Walter Benjamin lamented how in the hustle and bustle of modern life, we no longer let ourselves be bored or slip into a deep state of relaxation necessary for creativity. She then cites Benjamin writing, boredom is the dream bird that hatches the egg of experience. A rustling in the leaves drives us, drives him away. His nesting places are already extinct in cities and are declining in the country as well. With this, the gift for listening is lost and the community of listeners disappears. What happens, Marila, when we can no longer not work? What happens when we can no longer be bored? Well, that's um, that's a good question. I guess most directly we've um, looked at the question in terms of our use of the Internet in our idle time, our free time. Um, not just, you know, of course, James has already mentioned that of course we most of us know now means that that other people or rather digital platform capitalists make money of our free time online because we click on things and then there's advertisement re- revenue etc but it's not just that um yes indeed this this idea of 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 us there not being a lot of room for boredom for chance encounters but for the time that we spent on the internet apparently pleasure time apparently leisure time where we just where we're just surfing the net is structured by those platforms in a way to just keep us on there at all costs and therefore pushes us in directions which are the opposite of boredom and and often you know involving a certain anxiety for example say that kind of um well 
one that delicious thrill, I guess, of, of, of Googling symptoms when you're ill, one that's perhaps now been overtaken by the coronavirus and the way in which the, the constant kind of updating of, of numbers of cases of, of, of detailed information sort of has that sort of thrill of addiction um, in a way, but without really um, giving us room to, to, to take, take a step back and to distance ourselves and, and to, well, perhaps to be bored or rather to just um, to, to take a step back from the information that's being fed us. So yes, that's that's one of the ways in which we've looked at at um, yeah at that question of of time online. Yeah, I, I mean that's an interesting passage from from Benjamin where he, he says that uh, um, a, a kind of state of, of distraction is um, it, it discourages creativity. Um, but, but there's another side to, to Benjamin as well. It, it's interesting you mentioned him as we we close the book with um, with, with reference to, to Benjamin. Also, evidently there's there's a kind of moment for him. The, the other um, claim that Benjamin would would want to make, you know, back, this back in the 30s and 40s, would be that um, uh, that that actually there are certain kinds of modern creativity or modern political realization that can come precisely from uh, the ostensibly destru- destructive influence of uh, of distraction, and I think that it's worth kind of paying attention to that as well. Uh, if we're accustomed to thinking of uh, smartphones and, and uh, uh, social media platforms as placating us and discouraging us from action, of, of drawing us into this kind of moribund inactive state, then that, that kind of flies in the face of the way in which over the past few years, such technologies and spaces have also been politicised. I, I think it would be, I mean, we describe a lot of kind of bad things about modern culture in the book, but I think it'd be a mistake to think uh, that we are therefore sort of passive zombies or sheep or just kind of uh, indulging in it or, or living through it. I mean, on the one hand, a, a quite obvious kind of example would be the way in which uh, the, the Bernie Sanders uh, uh, DSA movements uh, over on your side of things um, and the, the movements around um, the, the Corbyn projects while it was here in Britain. These were, were examples of um, technology being repurposed to uh, explicitly um, rebellious left-wing socialist ends. Th- these technologies, which on the face of it seem to be an absolute kind of nightmare of uh, of late capitalism, of Silicon Valley um, uh, uh, kind of dystopianism. Um, and yet we've seen ways in which um, exactly the kinds of sociability, kinds of... Um, anarchic meme making all these kinds of ostensibly apolitical pleasure can actually uh, be repurposed to radical ends and another example would be it's easy to kind of satirize but the way in which many liberals have sort of lost their minds in recent years over um you know ideas about the russians have taken over facebook and are tricking everybody into supporting trump or brexit i mean okay this is not a terribly sophisticated interpretation of how digital media works but uh, it's again an example of how um people are at least suspicious of these technologies okay we're using them all the time okay we're kind of sucked into them but there is a kind of a, a skepticism there you write that, uh, Marila, you write that your fun looks like work too. Your social media is a continuously rolling modeling portfolio, show reel, and 
curriculum vitae, and video games focus less on fighting and shooting than on simulating managerial labor. Meanwhile, it's the platform's owners who derive value from the labor of your laziness, your boredom, your desire, your anger, your trauma. And you add that if none of this applies to you, if you work illegally, if you can't work or try to say, I would prefer not to, as Bartleby did, you might just disappear. What happens, Marila? What happens to someone when they disappear from work life? Right. Well, um, this is something we've been very interested in, in um, to the extent that we thought that the, the ways in which work is bad these days actually warrants some new terminology. And the two steps, I guess, of that disappearance that we saw, um, we call malemployment and disemployment. The first one, malemployment, we see as the kind of employment that in your government's statistics will come up as being employed, but which in your life are not the kind of work you can live by, whether that is because that work is fixed term, zero hours, or otherwise precarious, or whether it is because you're being so aggressively micromanaged at work, or whether it is because you have to be available all, all day and all night, um, digitally available to do your work as and when. So um, that kind of malemployment um, go so far, we think, that oftentimes you can't even very clearly um, distinguish in that binary opposition that we're used to between employment and unemployment. So that you get forms of, um, uh, what's, what's a good example of this? Well, for example, in Britain, um, nearly half of uh, people who who are homeless are actually in work. So, you know, that's, that's a good example of that. How does that, how can that qualify as being employed when you don't even have a place to live on the basis of which you can do your work? Um, then another example might be um, workfare programs where people who are officially unemployed and people who are officially employed work alongside each other and may very well end up sleeping in the same sheltered accommodation and claiming the same benefits. So one way or another, we seem to have reached a point where this sort of um, dissolving of the edges of work means that we can't even clearly, meaningfully from a human perspective, distinguish between employment and unemployment. Um, so there's that. And then since you asked about that question of complete disappearance, we also thought of those people who we consider to be disemployed in the sense that they were effectively um, shut out from the numbers from the figures altogether. They, they no longer feature in unemployment figures because they no, no longer feature in, in civic uh, accountability um, altogether. And there's just this increasing um, army of people uh, around the globe who are who may be unemployed and no figures within a country, but who also may be stateless, who somehow um, completely disappear from that way in which work makes us citizens in, in the first instance. And that has me very concerned, especially with coronavirus and so many people who are going to be losing their work. And especially those who are in the, if you are in the informal economy, you certainly aren't going to be reimbursed for your lost time of work. You're not going to be compensated. And there are so many people who depend upon that kind of informal econ economy. James, I have had friends, family members tell me that what I do is not work because we are not paid by an employer. What little money we do raise is all from listener contributions. We are very proud to be completely listener supported and without any commercials or sponsors. We're only broadcast on community and college radio stations, which do not pay us. We pay for our own streaming service as well as all of our ability 
ability to podcast, and many have told me that means I am not really working, James, despite putting in 11-hour days, five days a week for the past 23 years. Is having no source of revenue other than listener support, no commercial sponsors, only earning through subscriber support and listeners who buy our stupid merchandise, is that work if we work outside the commercial or public media models and are instead completely listener supported without any grants or funding other than listener support? Is that kind of working outside of work? Why is that why is that kind of working seen as outside of work? Yeah, okay. Well, um, it, I, I guess it's a case of um, there being two ways of seeing what, what you do on this wonderful podcast, Chuck. On the one hand, you could be seen as somebody who, um, against the odds, against uh, uh, the, the kind of um, the way in which today we're uh, living in this utter kind of work dystopia where everything we do is work, you have managed to uh, live this uh, almost post-work life where you are surviving on the basis of uh, something that you want to be doing, this project of kind of pure uh, exploration of ideas, pure discussion. Um, and uh, the, in a sense, uh, you're somebody who's managed to uh, ride, the, ride the wave of um, these new forms of digital media in order to kind of find a space of what we'd call deservement. That is something that is uh, something that has escaped on some level the logic of work. That would be a kind of very flattering philosophical way of describing what you do. On the other hand, uh, you are what we would call uh, a young girl uh, in, <laughs> in the sense that uh, all of us uh, today, uh, in order to um, uh, make money to survive, in order to kind of pursue uh, our projects, have to continuously sell all kinds of parts of ourselves that previously uh, the labor market didn't demand of us. We have to act, it's a young girl, because we have to act like a, a Jane Austen character who doesn't uh, uh, technically earn money, but whose whole labor goes into the presentation of her skills, her beauty, uh, and so on. Um, the, the other kind of side of this kind of project is that uh, as much as you seem to have kind of escaped from conventional work, and that's why your friends slightly resent you, on the other hand, uh, you are continuously working because, yeah, as you say, your entire personality, your entire kind of uh, uh, life world has to go into, um, has to be put to work in order for this to function. I have so many, I, I think I wrote 150 questions for you two, and I don't know where to actually go next. Marila, is life work increasingly being challenged? Are we seeing more of this writing and thinking on anti-work and post-work? Are we seeing that because it is increasingly having an effect on the middle class, the precarious lifestyle that we see within neoliberalism, leading to an end of any dependence upon the middle class's work, making their jobs no longer uh, as stable as they used to be, as this pressure increases on those who increasingly make more money from other classes than the poor and working class? Is it leading to more of an unstable life for the middle class? And that's why we're seeing people reconsider life work. Well, I think the answer to that is yes. Um, um, sad, sadly, that is true. And I guess that goes back to your first question about uh, the idea that precarity has always been around. Um, yes, it has always been around. Yes, it is rap rapidly expanding now. Downward mobility is affecting more and more of us. And perhaps the footnote here is, is that it's affecting more and more um, 
academics more and more creatives, I guess. So, um, so that there is the, the kind of people who who might write books about these things are more affected by the phenomenon they're describing, I guess. Um, so yes, that is true. Um, but I think we should see this as a hopeful thing rather than a cynical thing. Of course, there is shame in the fact that the 90s and the noughties were such an empty, empty time when when the middle classes were sufficiently comfortable to be so sleepy about the kinds of um, injustice um, and suffering that were w going on around their fringes, as it were. And now that's changing. Um, but yeah, I do think there's hope in it because things have gotten so bad now that it's becoming increasingly inevitable that these things are shown at the surface. And, you know, in a way, just to get it in one more time, um, I think that the coronavirus crisis shows that too, because um, it's becoming clear now to many more people than before that neoliberalism and the um, the aftermath of the 2008 financial crisis and, and the way in which that's um, been mismanaged, shall we say, um, um, has completely completely dismantled the social welfare safety nets um, such as they were, that now a crisis like that hits and there's just no slack, no slack in the system at all. So whether you are a taxi driver or an international airline, um, if you can't work for a couple of days, um, the whole thing um, goes down, you're, you're bust. Um, so I guess the question now is, is that it feels like it's a moment that's up for grabs, even though, I mean, in Britain, we've had that great um, political disappointment. And, you know, we're still keeping our fingers crossed one way or another um, uh, for America. But um, I guess that the, the question now is, is how, how is this going to pan out? People are beginning to realize that they cannot cling on to their little island of safety and comfort. And the question is now whether that pulls us towards greater hostility and towards um, uh, greater conservatism and individualism, or whether it pulls us towards a kind of, um, you know, a, a breaking of, of the status quo and, and an imagining of, of new alternatives, and even perhaps an experience of working together towards new alternatives that a, a crisis can bring. James, yeah. in your and Marila's work, you quote so many people who have been on our show in the past since 2014, 2015, and we have all these interviews archived at our website, thisishell.com. We've interviewed uh, people you quote like Sophie Lewis, Nick Simersek, uh, Alex Williams, uh, David Frayne, Peter Fraze. Uh, throughout your book, you keep quoting people who we have had on the show, and I want to make sure that our listeners understand that they can go back and listen to those interviews, and you contradict, you argue against many of the points that these people have made and their fascinating points that they made in the past or else obviously you wouldn't be citing them. You write in the face of dystopian predictions of mass unemployment, anti-work thinkers like the ones I was just mentioning, mentioning proposed to simply go with the grain of these changes to take capital at its word about the superfluity of labor and to demand the transition to a post-work society. As much work as possible could be performed by machines with humans left to pursue flourishing in all the areas of life they are currently kept from by bullshit work, as David Graeber calls it, sustained for as long as money is an appropriate unit of exchange by something like a universal basic income, UBI, paid to all citizens. Taking capital at its word about the superfluity of labor. Is this post-work ideal then a pro-capitalist idea? What might be missed about any understanding of capitalism when capital is taken at its word about the superfluity of labor? 
Yeah, well, um, this is um, this is a critique that's been made, that, uh, and, and we've got our own version of it. That this extraordinary kind of flourishing of, of anti-work writing that came about after 2014-2015, that actually um, close examination of it, of all those people that you name, um, it demonstrates how quite how difficult it is to get out of the logic of work and the logic of capitalist work specifically so yeah in that quite simple way um the the, the uh this argument which phrase seneca williams get, give that uh, labor has become superfluous and so we we should now uh, embrace the machine get uh, uh, automation full automation doing all of the uh, work that we need to do leaving us to kind of get along with um uh, you know, whatever uh, we fancy pursuing um, once we're freed from work, that there is an acceptance there that work could only be uh, this negative, destructive thing. Uh, and that, yeah, the demands of the labour market are, are law. There is a kind of danger, perhaps, of getting oneself off the hook about uh, having to um, uh, uh, define what you want work to be like in in the contained in that kind of logic of abolishing it altogether. It's quite interesting, really, that when that kind of wave of, that first wave of books uh, really came out uh, around the 2015 mark, um, quite a number of the people associated with this kind of very, this return of the utopian idea of the post-work society very quickly became involved in, um, in, in radical politics around Corbyn and Sanders, that applies to Cernick and Williams, who, who became, uh, who, who at various times advised John McDonnell, and, and it applies to um, Aaron Bastani, who coined this phrase, uh, fully automated communism. Um, I, 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 what I'm curious about is um, not so much the fact that uh, that initial utopian demand was then followed up with a kind of involvement in the nitty gritty of day to day organising, but rather in the way that now we're at a point where possibly those electoral projects have both failed. I think it's probably failed for Bernie as well. Um, we're now in a position where we, we kind of ask, well, what's left? We've, we've seen kind of these extraordinary kind of paradigm-breaking demands of, of, of a utopian post-work society. We've seen a more pragmatic electoral politics. Um, and, well, I mean, look around us right now. The coronavirus, okay, of course it, it's... Uh, utterly uh, terrifying and of course it's exposing all the vulnerabilities and all the new forms of precarity that we describe in the book but um, it's also revealing that uh, a lot of those ideas put forward by Cernick and Williams, Stani, uh, Helen Hester and so on were maybe not so impossible and not so utopian after all. Look at Scandinavian country after Scandinavian country introducing a universal basic income, the cornerstone of this uh, post-work idea. Look at how in Britain um, uh, airlines are asking that the government bail them out like they bailed out the banks after 2008. Well, if that happens, it really leaves open the opportunity for a kind of new um, uh, green 
uh, uh, form of transport to 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 be um, investigated once uh, you've got rid of the problem of um, the airlines being private businesses. Um, and even more simply, when more and more of us are uh, undergoing containment or are shut away uh, from the disease or shut away to stop us spreading the disease, we're going to be in the position of um, the post-work utopians that we describe in the book, the position of actually having to ask what we want to do with our time when our time is not completely kind of full up with work. So what we're seeing right now is the potential for kinds of moments of decommodification, actually, right in the teeth of a crisis. So it may be that although we, we kind of have our criticisms of all those people you name, it may be actually only now that we can start to see some of the things that they demanded uh, actually being demonstrated to be far more practicable than many of their critics thought. Mariah, you, you have- I'm sorry, go ahead. Right. No, I just said, we don't have a, a load of criticisms for them, actually, on the whole. This makes it, just clarifying, it makes it sounds like sound like we're completely different from them. And really, we're, we're saying that they're beginning a really important process, that there's a lot more work to be done within in the future. Right. But you do vary on some of your opinions, which is fascinating, especially for our listeners who are interested in those conversations we had in the past. This is the evolution of that conversation. Many of those conversations I had with them in the past was that's exactly what they wanted to do is they wanted to start that conversation. Mariah, you and James write that a common perception among them is that one of the main impediments is in such attempts to anticipate a post-work life is the moral judgment and exclusion they experience in a society where so much sociability and sense of worth is organized around work. That said, as David Frayn warns, and you quote, a lot of popular anti-capitalist polemic also tells people, other, often in a rather pious fashion, that they will be happier if they choose to work less and moderate their spending. As much as the work ethic is obviously moralized in culture, it seems there is also the danger of an equivalent moralism of the refusal to participate in capitalist culture, meaning that work and non-work both end up being justified in moralizing terms. Mariah, what's wrong with moralizing anti-work, with moralizing less participation and complicity with capitalism? Why is moralizing in either sense, work or anti-work, bad for either cause? Mm, good question. Thank you. Well, first of all, um, no- nothing wrong with morality if what it means is the idea that we should share our resources. Um But moralism, I guess, is what we see as an uninspected assumption of what the the perfect good opposite, the flip side of the kind of work that we do now is. And uh, with all our sympathy, we were struck by the way in which um, many of these um, great writers and thinkers ended up when it came to the question of, well, what are we actually going to do in that wonderful post-work future, ended up saying, fairly pious things in the sense that, well, you must self-improve. And I guess there's a sort of Puritan tenor to that, like, well, if you're not working, then at the very least, you must do something that's very similar to work, which is the work on the self and the work of, that makes you a better person in some sort of particular prescribed way. And, you know, again, quite a lot of the things that kind of feature in those lists were, I'm sure, were things that we'd all love to do, which is to learn an instrument, to have more time for reading, for culture, for art, etc. Um, but I guess what we just wanted to be cautious about and leave some room for here is that it's a more radical question. What would we really want to do if we didn't have to uh, drudge, if if we really could 
take that incredible machine power we've got and direct it towards protecting our environment and protecting our time in a fair fashion, what really would happen with that time has got to stay radically open to some extent. We don't we don't already know what it is that that we could do at that time in the in the future um, where all those wonderful things are happening it, it it's not it's not great for everybody to be um you know to be learning to play the violin or to have an allotment there's got to be a bit more room um for people to come up with new ways precisely also to work together because i guess um we feel like after um you know uh, decades of neoliberalism our idea of what you could do together with other people is somewhat impoverished by the individualism of work um, so I guess, in short, to leave some room open for, for that new um, post-work future to be as different as it can be from the effects of the negative effects of work um, that affect our subjectivity and our ways of imagining alternatives as well as everything else. So, Jane, so I'm, I'm sorry, yeah. I was just going to ask, right. what are we without the gathering socializing force of labor? Because Mariah just touched on that. Yeah, indeed. Um, th this is um, this is part of the way in which the, the kind of whole uh, idea of the of a post work future, which seems like it's a very kind of pragmatic one. What would you have to do with the machinery? How would you kind of get people on board with the project and so on? Um, how would you make those Star Trek replicators? Um, it, it, it's actually a, a kind of hugely philosophical one. So much uh, has uh, work come to structure everything we do that it becomes bit like very very difficult indeed to conceive of um sociability of relationships that aren't in some way um kind of mediated by it i mean even now uh, our most kind of elementary uh, uh romantic relationships family relationships these of course are a, are a product of industrial capitalism the, the the way in which we're accustomed to organizing our intimate relationships um has come from that to a great extent so um in the kind of work of of, of these uh, of these post work thinkers, and it's very interesting to, to, to us that um, it, it's always at times of um, economic recession or crisis that this argument starts being made. It, it was made by Keynes by, by Maynard Keynes himself, who, who gives us one of the most powerful kind of statements of the, the post work utopia in his little text on the. Um, economic prospects of our grandchildren, where he, he says it's almost inevitable, writing in the very depths of the 1930s depression, he's saying it's inevitable that we're going to have a massively reduced working week and more luxury. Then when the post-war consensus started breaking down in the late 60s, that's when you get um, the kind of rise of, uh, of, of Italian thinkers making very similar kind of arguments on the left. In the context of the post-2008 recession, you saw the argument being made once again. It, it's always kind of made from the point of uh, th this argument for luxury comes from the point of uh, view of, of, of crisis and deprivation. But when the, the, the person making the argument for the post-work culture starts to describe what sociability, life, achievement is actually going to look like without the mediating uh, influence of work, um, that's where you suddenly are into the kind of realm of a slightly impossible question. When it's thinkers of the kind that Mariah is describing uh, who, who say, well, it's going to be great because you're going to spend more time with your family, or if it's thinkers saying, well, it's going to be great uh, because you're going to be able to learn the clarinet and read all of uh, Greek tragedy, um, it's telling that in both of those cases, there's a kind of moral assessment being made of what 
good activity is as compared to uh, uh, the familiar kinds of work. And indeed, they become a little bit work-like in themselves. Oh, well, you'll be able to morally improve yourself and become kind of more of an intellectual and so on. There's still a kind of LinkedIn capitalist logic in play. When um, we try to do the opposite, as um, as Bastani has tried to do with this fully automated luxury communism idea, um, when we say, well, uh, we're not going to kind of tell you what you're going to need to do uh, in the post-work society, you're going to be able to do exactly what you want, indulge in any kinds of excesses, luxuries, whatever. There's going to be no kind of moral assessment or judgment at all. Then, of course, the only way we can imagine un untrammeled desire is through the lens of desires that we're used to now in capitalism. There's this kind of intriguing way in which um, any attempt to describe this kind of uh, future freed from work, a certain logic of, um, of assumptions that we've cultivated within, you know, on this side of the break before the revolution, um, mm. uh, uh, inevitably inflect our kind of uh, description of it. I mean, there's a reason why Marx was always so reluctant to describe what socialism would actually be like. And all of these thinkers, when they come to describe what this good thing we're going to have when we stop working is, they all kind of fall into the, the problem. We have been speaking with Mariah Fannebecker and James A. Smith, co-authors of Work, Want, Work, Labor and Desire at the End of Capitalism. I have one final question for each of you. And as we do with each and every one of our guests, our final question is what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. Let's start with you, Marila. You write, share your limits might be one slogan for a post-capitalist outlook on our technologies. In its spirit of connective interruption, we might take on the challenge to refigure our technologies, not only to minimize the climate catastrophe and redistribute resources, but also to give room for unworking human encounters. In political terms, this might mean, instead of looking for harmony and broad brushstroke consensus, to look for the kind of creative democratic agonism political theorist Chantal Mouffe proposes in philosophical terms, or the pursuit of what Jeremy Gilbert, a political and cultural theorist, calls experimental anti-individualism that resists the lure of conformist communitarianism. In terms of work, it might just mean that as we win the fight for technologies that free up time for all, we'll gain more room from what, again, Walter Benjamin sees as the essence of children's play, experimentation, and openness to all comers to join. As it stands today, Marila, how inclusive is anti-work and the writings on what post-work can be? Do they suffer from any of the structural problems of work, including racism, classism, misogyny, patriarchy? Well, I guess some of them, some of them might, and some of them struggle against that more and less successfully, like any other kind of writing of our moment. But um, that said, I would say that um, I would say that um, anti-work writing, at the very least, uh, raises the the hope and the possibility um, for an alternative, and that, of course, needs to continue to be a conversation. And I think. Um, in terms of those those ghosts that always um, haunt any discussions of, of um, radical alternatives, um, racism, sexism, etc., I think um, 
I think we're we're in a good moment to try and bring together what achievements there have been um, on those questions with um, a more radical um, uh, demand for solidarity uh, in material terms. And James, you both write that it is not incidental that these examples of fulfilling human activity from fishing to reading Aeschylus, another activity that Marx was saying would be a great uh, productive work of our productive time use, are made up entirely of what we might call productive enjoyments. It is not about viewing waxworks and magic lanterns in the morning, reading penny novels in the afternoon and drinking gin all evening, all of which must doubtless be left behind as the pastimes of alienated spirits spiritual poverty. James, in the anti-work world, in the post-work world, is there really not going to be any beer or weed? <laughs> well, there better be. I, I, <laughs> Thank you, Mariah. I take the view that reading Aeschylus and, and fishing would be vastly improved by the beer and weed, Chuck. <laughs> James and Mariah, I really appreciate your work. This book is really amazing. And like I said, listeners, read this book, go back and listen to the past interviews we have done on anti-work and the post-work world in the past. And it's really a great compilation of understanding where this thinking is evolving, where it's going. And you two have made a great contribution to it. Thank you so much for being on our show. Marila Fannebecker and James A. Smith are co-authors of Work, Want, Work, Labor and Desire at the End of Capitalism. Thank you so much for being on our show this week. Thank you so much for having us. Thanks, Chuck. Take care. There's also one other quote I wanted to mention from their book. They mentioned uh, see, uh, how life work is imposed on the West, has been imposed on the West through, quote, a quasi-adolescent self-commodification that increasingly defines all other forms of work-based subjectivity. I just love the idea of our time on social media being seen as quasi-adolescent self-commodification. That's pretty brutal. Live from late capitalism, where we know the price of everything but the value of nothing, this is hell. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory, rotten history. On March 16th, 1244, 776 years ago, today, Monday, some 10,000 soldiers loyal to the French King Louis IX attacked the Chateau de Montségur, a hilltop fortress near the Pyrenees Mountains, after a nine-month siege. The chateau was the last stronghold of the Cathars, a religious sect who regarded themselves as Christian but were viewed by the Catholic Church as heretics. The Cathars believed in reincarnation and in an eternal struggle between an eternal struggle between an evil god of the Old Testament, whom they identified with Satan, and a good god of the New Testament, whom they identified with Jesus. So think of it as a Christianity with a little Buddhist reincarnation thrown in, and what seems to be a not quite implied, pretty much straight alluded to anti-Old anti -old Testament anti-Semitism. The Cathars viewed the material world as a creation of the evil Old Testament God and considered the distinction between male and female genders a meaningless illusion. So Christian, Buddhist, anti-Semitic, gender fluid. That's pretty much the Cathars. They saw all violence and war as sinful and refused to eat meat because it was the product of sexual reproduction, which has got to rank as the worst reason to not eat meat. 
The Roman papacy had spent decades trying to do away with the Cathars, first by missionary conversion and then in some 20 years of battles and massacres known as the Albigensian Crusade, regarded by many historians as a genocide because if Christ stood for anything, it's genocide against all heretics. At the Chateau de Montségur, the Cathars had reached their end. The forces of King Louis invaded their fortress and forced them to surrender. Some 200 Cathars who refused to renounce their beliefs were burned alive in a giant fire. Again, very Christian thing to do. And within a few months, a few more years, the sect would fade from history. Louis IX would become the only French king to be canonized as a Catholic saint. And the American city of St. Louis is named after him. Why not? King Louis committed genocide, didn't he? Can you think of a more appropriate king to become a saint in the Catholic Church or to have a major city named after him in the United States than an imperial king who committed genocide? In Rotten History, March 21st, 1788, 232 years ago this Saturday, on a very windy afternoon in the port city of New Orleans, the home of a U.S. Army officer located near the city's Jackson Square caught on fire. Rotten History plus wind plus fire. This will not end well. Under normal circumstances, the Roman Catholic Church nearby would have rung its tower bells to alert the populace and call out the local fire brigade. But since it was Good Friday, the day commemorating the crucifixion of Jesus, and the church's priests being total dicks, they would not allow their church bells to be rang. And again, I'm certain that's what Christ would have wanted. Fed by the wind... The fire quickly spread until within some five hours most of New Orleans was in flames. But at least Good Friday wasn't disrupted by the clanging of bells ringing. The fire destroyed all the city's major buildings except for those on the Mississippi Riverfront. In the majory building that followed the most important wooden buildings lost in the fire were replaced by new brick and masonry structures. But the rebuilding of New Orleans with bricks... A six-year project was cut short when the city suffered another major fire in 1794. No word on if the Catholic priests were total dicks again by refusing to warn the locals. That's Rotten History, and this is Hell. Hey, Alex, who's on tomorrow's Tuesdays live? This is Hell, streaming at 10 a.m. here on thisishell.com. Uh, tomorrow, sorry, I banged my mic there. Tomorrow, On Barak will be on to talk about his book, Powering Empire, How Coal Made the Middle East and Sparked Global Carbonization. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, podcast, live streaming host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's show, Alex Jerry. Thanks to Marila. Thanks to James for being our guests this week. Marila Fanabecker and James A. Smith are co-authors of Work, Want, Work, Labor, and Desire at the End of Capitalism. Thanks to Alex for producing. Thanks to Ronaldo for doing Rotten History. Thanks to Theron Humiston for clearing, cleaning up our sound over the last couple of weeks. Truly revolting radio. This is Hell. Talk to you tomorrow. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>